Our gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 9. We are reading from verse 1 to verse 29. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this, cannot, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word, we ask that you will speak, for your servants are here to listen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
If you heard the story, you'll have to forgive me. It's a Colson family classic. I grew up in eastern North Carolina where there's not a tremendous amount to do with your time as a kid, and so the major sports of baseball, football, and basketball were what occupied my life. Baseball in particular was dominant. In the small town where I played, the metropolis of Winterville, North Carolina, it was a Friday evening, and so most of the town would turn out for the Little League championship game. I was 10 years old. As a 9-year-old, I was terrible. I had had a horrible season. I had been great in peewee where the coach throws to you underhand, and then as a 9-year-old, I was obliterated by the pitching, and I no longer was proficient in the field. And so my dad had taken me out that winter, and he had worked with me over and over and over teaching me how to catch fly balls, teaching me to hit the ball. And so I come into my 10-year-old year, and I have a fantastic season. Everything has now reached its pinnacle and denouement. It is the bottom of the sixth inning. There are two outs. The bases are loaded. And who else is at the plate? It was my turn. We were down by one run, as you would suppose. It was like a setting from a movie. I was nervous because Bill Smith was on the mound. And as we were wont to say then, Bill threw gas, okay? He could pitch hard. Bill had a mustache. He was 12 years old, and <laughs> it was frightening. Bill had hit me once already this season, so I was scared to death. And I climbed into the batter's box, saying prayers, asking for God to have mercy on me to transfigure me out of this situation, do whatever he needed to. First pitch, I rocketed into left center, I'm carried off the field a hero. We won the game. Just after the game, after I've been carried off the field, they are naming the all-star team, the 9- and 10-year-old all-star team. I've had a great season. I'm a shoe-in for the all-star team. This is what I'm surely thinking. And so I'm sitting in the dugout as they name the team, and uh, they're going down the order of the teams, and I played for the A.O. Williams Termites. And so we were early on in the naming process. And, uh, and they began to go alphabetically through each team as to who was being named to the all-star team. The first player called from my team was David Doherty, the coach's son. He trots out onto the field and lines up along the first baseline. And I think, well, cer certainly there's been a mistake. Chuck Colson precedes David Doherty in the alphabetical order, and they've just messed up. It's Winterville. And then they named another player from my team, and it was the practice to name two from each team. And suddenly, reality came crashing in on me, and they moved on to the next team. And so I went from being carried off the field, a great hero, to my parents literally having to come lift me out of the dugout and carry me to the Caprice Classic to take me home, you know? It was the most confusing combination of events I probably have ever experienced in my life of exaltation, glory, to just decimation and shame. It made absolutely no sense. And as a 10-year-old, how was I supposed to hold all of that together? And friends, it's this same kind of dynamic that's being pressed upon the disciples. And we need to have compassion on them while they look so very dense. Because Jesus is pressing them hard with two images an image of a transcendent son of man who is the son of David who comes to rule over the nations. And this glorious figure who's also going to suffer. 
and they can't figure out how to hold it all together. And so Peter, at the midpoint of chapter 8, confronts Jesus and rebukes him for talking about going to the cross to die. Because that wasn't what messiahs did. A dead messiah was a defeated messiah. And so Peter rebukes Jesus for speaking about death. Jesus corrects Peter. And then Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on top of a mountain. And he's transfigured. And people are curious, what exactly is this? What is happening? And what it simply is, is it's a preview of coming attractions. It is a preview of Jesus in his resurrected state announcing to the disciples that he is it. Now, certainly Peter misunderstood this moment. You remember what it said in verse 1 of chapter 9? That some of you will not die until you see the kingdom of God come in power. And you know what Peter, James, and John are thinking? Bingo. Here it is. It's arrived. It's finally here. That suffering bit, forget about it. It's, it's here. The kingdom of God has come in power. And so Peter wants to go on a building campaign. He wants to put up three little booths, one for Elijah and one for Moses and one for Jesus. He wants to capture the moment. It says he didn't even know what to do. He was just bumbling and stumbling. And then Jesus once again turns to the idea that he's going to die and he's going to rise. And the disciples, once again, don't know what to do with it. How are they to hold together this glory and this shame? And Jesus comes with the disciples off the mountain. After God from the cloud has said, listen to him. And he comes off the mountain, and the scene is very similar to Exodus 32. Moses comes off the mountain, and what he finds is faithless Israel engaged in idolatrous worship practices. They had taken all their gold, they had melted it down, and what had they made? A golden calf. And they said, behold, the gods who brought us out of Egypt. We don't know what happened to Moses. And what does Jesus see when he comes off the mountain after being transfigured? What he sees is a great crowd and there's an argument. And they were arguing about why the disciples could not cast a demon out of this boy. And there were scribes there who were opposed to Jesus. And then there seemed to be many onlookers who were just kind of adventurers. They were just curious about what was going to happen. And then you have the disciples. And Jesus in verse 19 says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? So in all of that circumstance, Jesus perceives a faithlessness, much like what took place at the foot of Mount Sinai. Israel engaged in idol worship, the people of God completely disarrayed, not trusting in Jesus. And guys, we have this same dynamic at work in our own lives when it comes to Jesus holding together these notions of His glory, of His greatness, and that His glory was going to come through suffering and shame, they are simply foreign categories. They push us. And even if we can intellectually and abstractly get our minds around it, we saw last week that these are not just applied to Jesus, that they are also pressed and imprinted into our lives as our lives take on a cross as well. 
And this is where we tend to struggle. And what we see in the wake of the transfiguration is we see that we, we struggle for two reasons. Two things that we particularly struggle with, with this glory and shame of Jesus. And the first is this, is that we struggle to grasp the gravity of the problem we face. The disciples were there. They had cast out demons before, and suddenly they meet a spirit that they don't know what to do with. They can't answer the demand. In verse 18, it says, And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And then in verse 20, And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And then again in 22, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. This was a new kind of evil set on destruction. We've encountered it before with the Gerasene demoniac in chapter 5, and we've seen demonic activity, but this is an intensification, and the disciples collapse in the face of it. And what exactly is happening? Jesus attributes it to a faithlessness among the disciples. And here's the general tenor of what was still happening. is The, the disciples were looking for Jesus to be a Messiah, but they still wanted a Messiah according to their own definitions and expectations. You remember that what they thought the problem was in the world was the Roman Empire, and the Romans were the ones living in Jerusalem, and until David's son was on the throne, everything was wrong. This is what the disciples believed the problem in the world was, that the right king was not on the throne. They were correct by half. They had some things understood. But they were misunderstanding how God would respond to the problem inside of creation. And what they sought to do is they sought to confront the problem with the problem. They sought to end violence and oppression and tyranny and godlessness with violence, oppression, tyranny, and godlessness. And so when Jesus comes talking about the power of the kingdom and the way of the kingdom, it's completely dark to them. How is Jesus doing his work? Because Jesus understood the gravity of the situation. That evil has infested itself in our world. It's polluted it. It exists in the forms of oppression like in this young boy's life exist in the forms of sin. It exists in the forms of death. And Jesus came not to simply be the proper king, but to be the proper king who brings an end to evil. And so he has to go through the path of destroying it. And this is where the disciples are laboring. And guys, they misdiagnosed the problem. And so, of course, they had the wrong prescription. And that can be the same for us. If we misdiagnose the problem, if we don't understand the gravity of our situation, the seriousness with which sin has infested the world, and take that seriously, that the world's problems are not politics. Politics is one place where sin manifests itself. 
The world's problem are not drugs. Drugs is one place where sin manifests itself, that it is the evil, corrupt order. And Jesus includes in the evil, corrupt order also the religious authorities of Israel who were very pious in many ways. And Jesus sees evil as all-encompassing. He had a category that we call total depravity. And he sees sin working itself out in so many different ways in the world, thoroughly corrupting humanity. And friends, we have to understand the gravity of the situation like that. Otherwise, we will have a pretty weak, domesticated view of Jesus, which is what the disciples had. They had a nice Messiah who was going to come and throw out Rome and do the things that they wanted Him to do and not really change and challenge their lives. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, he tells the awesome story of the Fellowship of the Ring, if you're familiar. And it's a company of people sent to destroy the one ring that combined all the rings. They were uh, a ring, it was a ring of power. And the ring has a magnetic attraction to it. People with the ring have incredible power. Bilbo Baggins can go missing. He can go invisible. The ring had some kind of curse in Tolkien's mythology within it. But the thing is, is that the council of Elrond, they determined that the ring needed to be destroyed. It could be destroyed in one place, so they send the fellowship to destroy the ring. They send them out on a journey. But on the journey, what happens is that each person, person in the fellowship determines at some different point that if they had possession of the ring, they could use its power for good. No, if I had the power, it would be wielded in the right ways. And friends, that's the thing the disciples are facing. They want to fight evil with evil. The fellowship of the ring, they wanted to fight the evil of the ring with trying to conquer it, and it would have conquered them. And what Jesus knows is that the evil has to be destroyed. That his victory is going to be unusual, it's going to be unorthodox, and it's going to press the limits of our understanding and what we can really appreciate. Because his glory and great victory, where he takes up his great throne, is going to come through a path of suffering. And that he has to do this in order to address the gravity of the situation that God's world had fallen into. Because what Jesus comes to do is He comes to bring resurrection power. Look in verse 27 as to what happens. Jesus interacts with the Father. He casts the demon out. But Jesus took Him by the hand and lifted Him, and He arose. Everyone had said He was like a corpse, and most people thought He was dead, and then Jesus lifts Him, and He arises. And this is Mark's clever way. It's the same words that are used for resurrection. In all the healings, all the way back to chapter 1, is the same words associated with resurrection when Jesus raises someone. And what is being said is that the resurrection powers, the powers of new creation, have fallen on this man through the one who has the authority and right to do so. And friends, that's what has to happen in each of our lives. That's what has to happen in our world for the world to be right is the resurrection powers of Jesus after He has absorbed 
the death of the cross, and all the forces of evil being piled upon him, caving in on him, taking him down into death. And then because he's the innocent and righteous one, he arises out of the curse of death, coming out the other side, and new creation explodes into the world around him. That's how seriously Jesus takes the problem of our world, that he's willing to give his life. He's willing for it to destroy him so he can destroy it. And we oftentimes, like the disciples, have a domesticated Jesus because we domesticate the problem of evil. We locate it in a few places, and we don't let it be as radical as it really is. And so this is the first struggle we have. We struggle to grasp the gravity of the problem. The second is this, is we struggle to walk in weakness, trusting in Jesus' strength. This is where we are asked to bear a cross, to walk in the same path that our Savior walks. But you'll see what happens in verse 18. The man comes to Jesus, and he says, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able The word that's translated able here is a curious one, and we've seen it before in the Gospel of Mark. It's the word that we literally translate strength. They were not strong enough would be another appropriate translation. We've seen this all the way back in Mark chapter 1. If you remember John the Baptist's words in verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier or stronger than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And then in Mark chapter 3, Jesus says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then in chapter 5, when Jesus meets the Gerasene demoniac, we learn that no one was strong enough to subdue him. And so this man comes to Jesus and says, your disciples were not strong enough. And Jesus, later on, when the disciples asked him why they could not cast it out, look what he says in verse 29. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so what was his critique of them? Well, we've already learned that he was calling them faithless. And they were failing to trust in Him, the One who is strong enough. That they were trusting in their own resources, and they brought their own sufficiency to the situation. Perhaps they were remembering back in chapter 6 when they had had all the success. But suddenly they're confronted by this intense form of evil and of sin and demonic activity, and they can do nothing about it. They're completely helpless. And what they failed to do is they failed to trust in the sufficiency of Jesus, that He is the strong one, that actually in all our works of ministry, it's Him who's at work, and He has to be the sufficiency that's empowering it and making it go forward, that He calls us from our weak state to trust Him as we go into the world. And friends, this is one of the hardest things for us. We live in a production-oriented society We love our independence. We love being self-sufficient. We pride ourselves on these things. And at the heart of the Christian faith, 
there's this call from Jesus that we be weak and dependent and that our strength be found in His strength. That our works and production be found in His work and production. That we rely upon Him. That we confess that we are unable, that we are incapable, but He's the one who can accomplish it. Recently, I was in a conversation with a woman who has long served on the mission field. She's an admirable example of a long and steady faithfulness. She's known throughout her mission organization as the strong one. They call it Jane's strength, in fact. She's always incredibly productive. She's always incredibly relational. She's a wonderful host. She started multiple businesses. She's evangelized hundreds of people. She's won many converts. She's a wonderful encourager and counselor. And people are always amazed by Jane's strength. And then a few years ago, Jane was struck with a sudden, unexpected bout of anxiety. Not just a little worry, but deep, paralyzing anxiety. Taking her down to a core in a place that she had never been, where she was almost too fearful to leave the house. And Jane, as she talks about it, she understands that her fears aren't rational but she also can't overcome them. And that in all her productivity over the years, she said she was learning that strength was to be found in weakness, not in her own reserves, not in her own sufficiency. And friends, this is what God tends to do with us when we are self-sufficient, is He brings us to a place where we must trust Him, when we do live in that faithless way and try to serve Him and try to do all of our works and we do it out of our own strength, He will oftentimes bring us low so that we trust Him, so that we find strength and sufficiency for the work that must be done in Jesus, the only one who has it. And friends, it's for these two reasons, because of our lack of our grasp, our, that we don't understand the gravity of the situation and because we don't like to trust Jesus to be strength and weakness, that we tend to miss Him. And it's related to that glory and shame peace on both fronts. That Jesus goes down into weakness, and that was His greatest strength. That was the way of His victory. And He asked us to walk in that same way, that Jesus goes down into, into the power of sin in order to defeat it. So the question left for us is, what are we to do? Because we understand the disciples. We understand all their faithlessness. We understand their collapse and Peter's foolishness, rebuking Jesus and wanting to build tents. What are we to do? And the answer is found in the Father in the story. Because what we're to do is we're to come to Jesus with our struggling faith And we're to risk everything on Him. That's what we learn here. The Father says it beautifully in verse 23. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And if you can't identify with that statement, then you need to question the veracity of your faith. 
Because that man is bringing something to articulation that is so hard, but it's felt by everyone of true faith. That yes, I believe. I believe you're able. I believe you're strong. I believe you can. I believe you're the Messiah who conquers sins. Help me in my unbelief as well. And friends, this is what God wants from us is this kind of trust. When we're talking about faith here, we're not just talking about intellectual assent. We're also talking about the trust of the heart, where we're casting ourselves on the sufficiency of Jesus, believing that He does accomplish what He has promised. Because it's then that we listen to Him. Remember what the voice from heaven said? This is my beloved Son, quoting from Psalm 2 once again. Listen to Him. And friends, it's at that point where we can come to God and say, I believe, help my unbelief, where we're submitting ourselves to Him, asking Him uh, to, to have His work and His way in us. We're risking everything on Him, selling out in that direction, in all of that weakness, in all of that perplexity. This is when God is really at work in our lives. This man is an example of what a disciple is to be. He's leading and correcting the faithless disciples who've been traveling with Jesus. Mark Edwards, in his commentary on this passage, says it well. He says, True faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The Father becomes a believer not when He amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, But when he risks everything on what little faith he has, when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. And friends, that is true faith. It's not amounting a certain quantum, a certain amount, but it's yielding our insufficiency and looking to Jesus in all of his sufficiency. That's what it is to come to Jesus in real faith. And friends, it's in that faith that we embrace the glory and we embrace the shame and we trust that in that complicated dynamic that the God who went low down into death is the one who is exalted and has gone high. And as we journey with Him in that path and as we walk in weakness, that we are experiencing the powers of new life as well, even now and we will do so in the age to come. That's Jesus' promise. That's what He seals for us. And He asks us to trust Him, to identify with His glory, to identify with His shame, to walk in the way of the cross. That's His invitation. Let that be true among us.